From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. So, J.R., 2019 saw some pretty big political stories in Wisconsin. The year started off with the inauguration of new Democratic Governor Tony Evers. He defeated Republican incumbent Scott Walker the previous November and found himself having to work with a GOP-controlled legislature. Things were contentious from the start, as that legislature had just passed laws in a lame-duck session before Evers took office designed to reduce his and new Attorney General Josh Call's powers. The move sparked protests at the state capitol and a number of lawsuits. So in what ways were their powers limited, and what's the status of these lawsuits? A lot of it was aimed at adding hurdles, if you will, to what Evers and Call wanted to do, new oversight for legislature. So things like Tony Evers and Josh Call had campaigned against the lawsuit to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Under former Attorney General Brad Schimmel, Wisconsin was part of that lawsuit. They both wanted to withdraw from that suit. Well, the lame duck laws included a provision that basically kind of made that more difficult to get the legislature's permission. Well, there was a lawsuit that put those restrictions on hold, and so Colin Evers were able to pull out that lawsuit during that. Just a lot of things to give the legislature more oversight, more input on what's going on and make life a little more difficult for Colin Evers. At this point, most of the lawsuits have been rejected. There was one right away from Liberal Group on Wisconsin Now challenging new restrictions on in-person early absentee voting. Those were overturned in January of 2019, if I remember correctly. Um, the other lawsuits, for the most part, have been rejected by the courts. There is one still pending as of late 2019, uh, waiting for the state Supreme Court to at any minute weigh in on the last piece of it, which was a question over the separation of powers issues that were raised over these changes. But that's the last lawsuit remaining. And once that's done, we'll have a clearer picture of what the legislature can still do in terms of the oversight that it gave itself in terms of the powers of Evers and Call. Another item that made headlines, gridlock and strained relations at the Capitol as a result of the lame duck laws and the dynamic between a new Democratic governor and a legislature that's been controlled by Republicans for many years. Some examples, when Evers called a special session on gun control, Republicans convened and then ended the session seconds later. The Senate rejected Evers' pick to run the Ag Department. Evers' budget eventually passed, but it looked a lot different than what he originally had proposed. In light of all this, did anything substantial pass besides the budget? Not really. I mean, there are some small things that they were able to find agreement, even things like bills to address homelessness. Governor Evers put that package into his budget as a gesture of goodwill to Republicans of, okay, this is something that you guys had worked on before. We'll put it in the budget and try to do it that way. Republican lawmakers took it out of the budget, saying, no, we're going to do it standalone bills on our own. It got through the assembly but went to the Senate and it was bogged down in late 2019 over concerns of the cost. So there were some things they agreed on. They eventually did a tax cut. Remember, the Republicans tried to do a tax cut before the budget. Evers vetoed that, eventually agreed to a tax cut in the budget. But most of the big things got done were in the budget because the one bill that had to pass this past session, and we'll see it, there wasn't a very good tone that was set for the next couple of years under Governor Evers if it remains a Republican-controlled legislature because they are fundamentally opposed to a lot of things that each other wants to do. I mean. In some ways, you know, look back at the 2018 election and Governor Evers' campaign against much of what Republicans did 
in the eight years, they controlled the capital almost without interruption. So you knew there were going to be some challenges if Evers won because he wanted to overturn a lot of what Republicans were bragging about. Now that we've seen what's kind of happened with um, the you know, forces at play in the Capitol with Governor Evers in the East Wing and Republicans both in control of both houses of the legislature, there's just not a lot of room for compromise because they can't agree on how to get things done. And what's the impact of all this gridlock on Wisconsin? Well, in some ways, it's business as usual. I mean, the things that Republicans put in place over eight years remain. Governor Evers can't repeal those things without Republican approval. So what he can do instead is nibble at the edges, um, you know, Republican, look at the, the big pieces of his budget, for example. You know, Republicans did a big infusion of cash into uh, K-12 education in the last budget Governor Walker did because Governor Walker was facing a difficult re-election campaign and knew that school funding was a major weakness. Um, Evers picked up that torch and because he'd called for more funding before and added even more in this budget. And Republicans went along in part because they knew that that was something that um, folks wanted. Now, they don't give him everything that he wanted in terms of school funding, but they did some some of it. So uh, that's kind of where we're at at this point. Another big story, a recent Ozaki County judge's ruling would purge more than 200,000 voter registrations in Battleground, Wisconsin. The judge sided with a conservative law firm in ruling that more than 200,000 voters should be dropped from the rolls because they may have moved. The case is now being appealed, and it might go all the way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. If the lower court ruling is upheld, what would be the impact? Well, it's a good question because it's hard to know of those original people who got the letters, how many of them, you know, really still live at their old address that was listed on records and are still expecting to to vote. Because, you know, the Elections Commission mailed, like, I'd say it's 230 or 240,000 letters originally. Of those, it, it shares statistics how many came back undelivered or were responded to. They were able to, on their own, find about 20-some thousand folks who they believe actually are registered somewhere else. So at least about 212,000 people are not sure about. Um, of those 212,000, how many of them are actually planning to vote next year? How many of them have not re-registered? You know, it, it, it's hard to know for sure. Um, the challenge is going to be for these folks is, do they have the stuff when they, because I mean, we still have the same registration in Wisconsin, so if they have the documents needed and they go to the polls and find out they're not registered, they can just re-register. It's not a big deal if they have the stuff they need. Now, if it's a, a current driver, a driver's license with a current address on it, that's enough. But if you have an ad, a driver's license with an old address on it because you don't have to get a new license every time you move, um, but if you have that license, you have to have, for example, a oh, uh, mortgage or a uh, lease or a utility vote. One of these documents that you can register to vote the worry is that if you don't have that documentation, you end up having to go back home to get it. You might say, you know what, it's not worth the hassle. I'm not going to go back to the poll. In that way, um, people don't vote because they just don't think it's worth the time. Or um, a lot of people who would be, in theory, pull off the rolls are living in large urban areas. Uh, the worry from some people is that you'll have longer lines at their polling sites because there'll be people who have to re-register it if they're Longer lines for various things means a longer wait, and that might discourage people. So, I mean, there are all kinds of what-ifs right now. But part of that is because we are a state where Donald Trump won by less than 23,000 votes in 2016. So every little bit can impact the outcome of our 10 electoral votes in November of 2020. That's that's concerned. Now, for Republicans, the counterpoint has been, look, these folks are supposed to be you know, registered properly. Law says 
in their words, that after 30 days, if you haven't responded to this letter, you should be pulled off the rolls. This is just what the law says. It's just what's right, and it lessens the chance for fraud. Um, now, don't forget, besides that that um, case from the states, that might go to the state Supreme Court, there's also a federal lawsuit now that's been filed by League of Women Voters saying, hey, uh, we think that the letters from the Elections Commission did not include adequate warning for the people who are getting these about what might happen. They don't respond. So we shouldn't be pulling these people off the roll. So it could be more than the state Supreme Court weighing in. It could be the federal courts as well before it's all said and done. Another headliner, two veteran Republican congressmen from Wisconsin announced their departures. Representative Sean Duffy, a former MTV reality show star elected to Congress in 2010, resigned in September because of family reasons. And Representative Jim Sensenbrenner announced he was retiring from Congress. He was first elected there in 1978. What's the significance of these two leaving, especially in Sensenbrenner's case? Well, since Byrne was the dean of the delegation, he had just the most experience. He'd been around for so long. It's just a real loss of institutional knowledge. Um, and somebody, especially with the redistricting process coming up in 2021, he's somebody who's been through that before numerous times and knows how that works. So that's, that's really a loss of experience. Um, honestly, it was a surprise that Sensenbrenner retired for a lot of people because they thought he really enjoyed being a congressman, that he would just stick around as long as he physically could. But when I talked to people about his decision to leave, the feedback I got was that he's so well known for doing town hall meetings and meeting with constituents and talking to folks and, and having these forums where he's out in the, in the community that he just couldn't do it as well anymore. And because of that, that's why he decided to retire because he just couldn't be the gym sense we've known for so long. Now with Duffy, it's a different story. He's leaving or left because he had his ninth child was on its way. Um, the girl was eventually born with a heart defect and Down syndrome. He said he needed to be home more to help with her. Um, with Duffy, he'd been kind of considered a, a future statewide candidate in Wisconsin. People talked about him in 2022 for U.S. Senate or for governor's office possibly. What significance there is that um, not just that he left office in the middle of a term, but Duffy went on to become a contributor on TV with CNN. Also, I went to lobby. Um, going from being a lobbyist to running for elected office is a hard transition sometimes. There are folks I've talked to who think that by becoming a lobbyist, Duffy's basically closed the door on his political future. I mean, it's not that you can't run again, but think of how well lobbyists are liked in this country and how hard it could be to be go from being a lawmaker to a lobbyist and try to come back to being a lawmaker again. People not be real thrilled about the idea of a guy who lobbied on issues and trying to go back to Congress or the U.S. Senate. So it could be a difficult jump for him and it may, like I said, close the door to his political future in Wisconsin. And finally, Donald Trump, as you were mentioning, narrowly won Wisconsin in 2016. Wisconsin's role as a key state in the presidential election was highlighted this year when Democratic leaders announced that Milwaukee would host the party's 2020 national convention. Milwaukee beat Houston and Miami Beach to win the convention. Were you surprised, and what's the significance of Milwaukee and Wisconsin landing this monumental event? Well, in some ways, people weren't surprised because of how important Wisconsin is and the opportunity to kind of bring the convention to the Midwest for Democrats. And the reason why uh, it was kind of an upset, though, in some ways, is that Milwaukee is not a um, major metropolitan area compared to a Houston or a, uh, down in Florida because it doesn't have the number of hotel rooms, doesn't have the capacity 
that some other large metropolitan areas has. Um, that's why you're seeing delegates being housed in places like Northern Illinois during the course of the convention. But the reason for coming is kind of uh, math and symbolism. Mathematically, you know, Donald Trump needs Wisconsin to win re-election. Now there are ways to get the 207 electoral votes without Wisconsin. Um, if he just holds everything he got last time and loses uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, President Trump can still win re-election because of Wisconsin. The Wisconsin is part of that blue wall. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Uh, there'll be a lot of focus in those three states in 2020. Now looking at 2018, Michigan and Pennsylvania went harder for Democrats than Wisconsin did in that midterm election. Those two states are also larger, more diverse uh, than Wisconsin is, more democratic. So the idea is if Trump isn't winning Wisconsin, he isn't winning Michigan or Pennsylvania. So we're going to be a focus for Trump because of you know that, that you, know, you really need a Wisconsin. For Democrats, if they can pick off Wisconsin, turn it back to blue, that's a big deal because then you're talking if Trump loses Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, he's got to go win a place like Minnesota, which hasn't gone Republican since 1972. A place like New Mexico, which he lost by eight points in 2016. Uh, Colorado, he lost by five points. It's harder for Trump to find new territory than to win when he had before. Um, symbolically, though, Democrats also chose Wisconsin because people still talk about Hillary Clinton not coming to Wisconsin in the, towards the general election in 2016. She's here for the primary without the general election. That that mistake may have cost her the state because she didn't cite voters in Wisconsin in rural and ur urban areas. By not doing that, it may have contributed to her loss. So Democrats are saying by coming to Wisconsin at the convention, we are not making that mistake again. Wisconsin will be a focus for us, and we're showing you what a focus it is by bringing a national convention here. It's a symbolic rebuilding the blue wall for Democrats. That's WisPolitics.com editor J.R. Ross. You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.